Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible under the chair in front of you. It looks like this. A black Bible like this. Go ahead and grab that, and you can open that to page 857. All right? Page 857. We're going to be in these 11 verses, and we are going to go straight down the line of all these 11 verses, okay? Um, We will be looking back at a few Old Testament passages because uh, this is Jesus versus Satan in this passage, and they're quoting the Old Testament. So we're going to look at what they were quoting and try to get fill in the details here about what are we to learn from this battle between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. Hear then the word of God from Ephesians, not Ephesians, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Some translations say he was famished. Verse 3, Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, And serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. Father in heaven, we have just read your word, and we read Satan and Jesus quoting your word. And so now we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to the churches. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in this battle between Satan and Jesus. Open our eyes to see your glory and your goodness and your son. Incline our hearts to your testimony and to not, not to dishonest gain, not to material gain. Open our hearts to receive your word. Give us minds to think about your word. Give us feet that are willing to obey your word. We pray for our friends here who are not yet Christians, not now Christians. We ask that even this time would be helpful for them to think about who you are. We, hear, we pray that they would hear a faithful presentation and message about who you are and what you've said. And we pray for them that saving faith would come by hearing the word of Christ. So convert us, convict us, Consecrate us, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The devil made me do it. Have you ever heard that before? The devil made me do it. There was even a t shirt I saw one time that said, The devil made me do it, and it was the will of God. Taking it even a step further, perhaps. Those are both statements of faith. The devil made me do it. That's, that's a theological statement, right? That's a statement of what you believe theologically. The devil made me do it, and it was the will of and it was God's will. Is it also another theological claim? We might question the accuracy of such theological statements, but we feel those sentiments from time to time. We feel the devil or demonic influence or temptation giving us crazy, stupid, wicked, evil ideas, thoughts, feelings that run across our mind, and sometimes we latch onto it, sometimes we don't. And then we also believe in the sovereignty of God, that everything is under God's control, 
that all our days were written in God's book before there was even one of them. He's in absolute control of absolutely everything all the time without exception. And so when we say, well, and it was God's will, there's a theological reality that everything that happens is God's will. So, um, but, but the point for us is we, when, when we have these battles with temptation, we, in our better moments, we hate the temptation. We hate the sin. We want to defeat and kill the sin in our lives, as it says in Romans 8, 12, to put to death the deeds of the body that we might live. And we want to defeat Satan, our, our ancient enemy. As, um, as people who love God, we want to defeat him. Now, if you're not a Christian, I imagine even though you might not believe in the devil, you might not even believe in God this morning, but if you're not a Christian, I imagine that you're also someone who doesn't want to be controlled or manipulated by someone who would want to destroy you. Maybe you don't believe the devil exists, but you still wouldn't want to be manipulated and controlled by someone who was out to destroy you. Uh, And so please know that this is what the Bible teaches. And I'd ask you to consider it this morning. Thank you for being here. It's a blessing. You're blessing us, and you're, you're a gift to us. Your presence here is a gift to us. And so we're thankful for you being here, and we just hope that, that, that as you reflect on these things, can the devil be real? And if he is, what might that mean for my life? That's something worth thinking about this morning. The problem for us, especially Christians, but for all of us, the problem is that Satan and temptation to sin are relentlessly waging war on our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Sin doesn't take a break. Temptation doesn't take a break. Satan doesn't take a break. Sometimes sin will play dead. It'll play dead and and give you a sense of victory, a sense of zeal after you feel really guilty about something. I'm never going to do that again. Never, ever again. I promise I'll never do it again. And And then you really feel a sincere resolve to the point where it feels like temptation just died and sin just died. But oftentimes it does just play dead until you're vulnerable again and the initial zeal and passion wears off only to catch you off guard once again. Now, it's discouraging. It's, it's discouraging to, to give in to temptation and sin. So we say things like, well, who's perfect anyways? I mean, nobody's perfect. Or we say, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? Or it's just the way I am. I mean, Christ hasn't come yet, so we will have indwelling sin. And, but, but even when we say those things to sort of halfway excuse ourselves or make us feel a little bit better about our sin, deep down we still feel saddened. And sometimes, oftentimes, we even feel just defeated. Like, I can't win. I'm not going to win in this area of my life or on this battlefront. And so sin and the powerful temptations continue to plague our lives and even plague our church. So the deep down question is, will evil win? over us in the end? Or will good conquer evil in us till the end? Now, here we have a temptation situation where uh, this is not our temptation. This is Jesus being tempted. Satan takes him into the, or the spirit. So Jesus was baptized. Remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. John the Baptist is preaching. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. And we talked about what that meant, if you remember. Um, and so, so that was the baptism. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Not, he is not a dove, but like a dove, descends on Jesus. And then verse 1 says, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. So whose will is it to go into the wilderness? Who's leading Jesus there? The Spirit, right? So God is it. This is God's will. God is leading Jesus into the wilderness. And so Jesus gets into the wilderness. He fasts which means he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, um, I know some members might be a little bit worse than me. I can think of one or two, but, but uh, some of us members, we don't just get hungry. We get hangry. You know what it's to get hangry? Where you're hungry to the point where you're angry at people. It doesn't matter what people say. You're just irritated. And, and until you get food here, you're not just hungry. You're hangry. And so, so Jesus here, this is not one day of, eat, of not eating. I mean, I get hangry after a few hours, right? Give me four or five hours, I'll be hangry. Um, he's not just not eating for a day, two days, one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, a little bit over six weeks, all right, 35 to 40 days, so six weeks and five days of not eating. Man, so he's in the wilderness. Don't think of wilderness with any plants or trees. 
Don't think of any green in this wilderness. This wilderness is complete dirt and plains of hard dirt, cracks in the ground everywhere, with maybe a thin layer of dust and lots of rocks, huge stones everywhere for miles and miles. It's a wilderness in Judea. So he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Hot sun during the day, cold nights, back and forth, no food. The Spirit sent him there. So there he is in the wilderness. And after 40 days, so he's really hungry at this point. He's basically at the point of weakness and and the necessity of actually eating now. Um, You could fast for a while, but after 40 days, your, your body actually really at this point needs it. You can't go much longer. So... Here he is. The devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, weren't you baptized and didn't God just say, this is my beloved son? If you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, supposedly, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Passes that test. Next test comes out, and um, then Satan says, okay. Um, It says in the Bible that if, that if you're God's man, that um, the angels will protect you. So jump off this. Uh, so, that, so he brings him up to the temple, probably the highest point with the deepest valley of the Kidron Valley. I think it's the southeast corner of the temple in Jerusalem. So the Kidron Valley right there, uh, maybe just a part, maybe, maybe not the temple proper, maybe the temple proper, or maybe just the fortress right there in the temple mount. But if he's at the highest point with the deepest drop, it would be 450 feet, 45 stories high. Jump. And if you jump, the angels say, Psalm 91, they won't let your foot strike. And Jesus says, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. So then Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, maybe in a vision, not like a literal, but in a vision maybe, seeing all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms, all of this, treasures, power, everything, if you'll just bow down and worship me. And then Jesus says, it's written, um, you shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. So Satan fails a third time, tucks his tail between his legs and waddles on out of there, perhaps. He leaves Jesus, it says in Luke, for a time. And then the angels are ministering, serving Jesus there in the wilderness. That's the story, okay? Satan versus Jesus, three temptations, Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Jesus does not budge. Satan loses that, this round. Jesus wins this round. But the battle will continue after this as we go on through Matthew. So let me ask you a few questions before we jump into our outline. Could Jesus sin? I mean, was, is Jesus able to sin? Don't, uh, you might want to answer. I don't know if you want to answer a lot. That's, this is a tricky question. So I'll, I'll spare you from raising your hands for this one. But um, could he have sinned? Yeah, the, the, well, the longer answer is yes and no. What I mean by yes and no is, yes, he was intellectually able to sin. Yes, he was physically able to sin. But no, he was not morally able to sin. And neither will we be morally able to sin on the new earth. When we get our resurrection bodies, we're in the new heavens and new earth, we'll still have choice, human responsibility. Some people like to call that free will. It's fine if you want to call it that. But we won't be able to sin. We won't be able to sin even though we we have choice. Okay, and so we will be morally unable to sin. Well, that's how Jesus is here. But, but even though that's true because Jesus is fully God and fully man, even though that's true, don't miss this point. Okay, don't let your theology cloud out and confuse you what God is teaching us here. These are real temptations. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm not morally able to sin, so I don't know why you're talking to me, Satan. The temptations don't bounce off of Jesus like toy arrows. No, the scriptures consistently teach that Jesus obeyed God and defeated temptation by faith in God, faith in God's word, and um, leaning on, relying on the Holy Spirit's power. The scripture never says Jesus obeyed out of the fact that he's God. So we have a problem sometimes when we hear this text because we, be, we believe as Christians that Jesus is God. So, well, he can sin anyways. This is not even a real fight. No, this is a real fight. This is a real temptation. Jesus has to trust God here, and he does. Put any BBC member of our church there against Satan 40 days in the wilderness, and you have all the resources you, you need 
to not sin. And you're not God. You don't have the God nature in you. But you would have everything you need to resist Satan in that situation and not sin. So here's the main point. Here's the main goal. Okay. Main goal of this text is rest in Jesus who defeats Satan to save you from your sins. Okay? Rest in Jesus who defeats Satan to save you from your sins. Matthew 121, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus saves you from your sins. That's one of the main points of the whole book of Matthew. But uh, repent, or not repent, sorry, rest in Jesus who defeated Satan to save you from your sins. So let's look at this, um, Jesus passing the test and defeating Satan. So number one, let's look at the first temptation. Jesus passes the hunger test. Jesus passes the hunger test. So there he is, hungry, verses two through four here. Turn these stones into bread. Now, if you're hungry and you're looking around everywhere and you see stones, you know when you start to have like, um, you start to get glazy-eyed and you start to imagine things like mirages and stuff? If you start to picture all of those stones as bread after 40 days of not eating and there's literally stones everywhere and you're starving, that's really tempting. I mean... If, if I could, if I was fasting for 40 days and, and I had the power to turn every stone into a Chick-fil-A sandwich with no pickle in it, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it. Especially being that, that, that hungry. This is a legitimate need that Jesus needs to be met, but he doesn't, he doesn't do it apart from God's initiative. It says, my God will supply all your needs. And yet he's not going to take the supplying into his own hands in a way that disobeys God. This could be, so Jesus, the point one is Jesus passes the hunger test. We're going to talk about the different tests Jesus passes. He passes the hunger test, firstly. And this is not just for food. For Jesus here, it's food. For us, it doesn't have to be just food. It could be any appetite uh, or need. Uh, It could be drink, water, exercise, sleep, even physical intimacy in marriage. These appetites are not merely logically deduced. They're physically felt. So it's not like, I need gas for my car. You can look at your your gas meter and be like, I need gas for my car. Do you feel that physically? No, but when you feel like you need to go to the bathroom, you can feel that physically, right? When you're hungry, you can feel that physically. When you're tired, you can feel that physically. So it's not just God meeting a need. It's the need that that I can physically bodily feel. We need these things. The philosopher R. Kelly captures it well when he says, My mind is telling me no, but my body is telling me yes. I don't want to hurt nobody, but there's something I must confess. I don't, he says, I don't see nothing wrong with physical intimacy, with my bodily cravings. That's, 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 that's bodily cravings here. One profession, one professing Christian who is clearly, there's one person conversation I had with a professing Christian who I was talking to and she was engaging in uh, sexual immorality. She wasn't married and uh, was a professing Christian, loved her dearly. And we were talking, not a member of my church. And I said, um, we, we said to her, we tell her, you know, you need to repent. You need to cut this off. And she said to me and my wife, I have needs. A girl has her needs. Basically, she's saying, my body has needs. I made it clear to her that that was clearly wrong and disobedient to God. And then I said, but you, you still say you love Jesus? She said, yes. I was like, but Jesus tells you not to not do this, and you're doing it, so do you really love Jesus? Well, then she said, well, I guess I don't then. But I still think I love Jesus. And then she said, I know it's against the Bible. I know it's against Jesus, but I have needs. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it. That, that's, that's the physical feeling of a need and then giving in. Initially, we may see Jesus wants here. So when you're looking back here, Jesus is hungry. He wants food, and he could make the stones into bread. And um, yet more than food, what does Jesus want? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that, where, that what? Comes from the mouth of God. So he says, basically, we might say, well, Jesus wants the Bible more than food. Or the Bible as well as food. So we may apply this. So what's the application for us? Read your Bibles every day and crave it more than food. Isn't that what First Peter 2 says? That we should crave the spiritual milk like a newborn baby? Psalm 1, 1 and 1, 2, that the man of God meditates on God's word. How often? Day and night. 
So we should crave God's word, right? That's, that's what the text, that would be an application here. Jesus trusted God's word as his ultimate need and his actual need, even before his other actual needs, his physical needs. We need the word of God more than we need food, physical intimacy, sleep, and water. This seems strange to us because we've been cultivated by Satan in a world and even in Christian culture. We need God's word more than we need food. Some may think, I don't need God's word. I already know it. Now, do you say that about food or sleep? Do you ever say, I don't need food? I already ate before in my life. I ate for 37 years of my life. I don't need food anymore. Is that what we say? I don't need sleep anymore. I've been, I've been sleeping for at least one third of my life. I don't need to sleep anymore. Does that make sense? If, I just, if, we, just, if we had a member here who just decided they're going to stop eating or stop sleeping because they've already experienced it so much? That doesn't even make sense. That's insane. That's obviously wrong. And yet sometimes as Christians, we talk like that with the Bible, right? I already know it. Already, I've already read it through it before. I've read that passage before. How many times have you eaten the same meal? And yet you still need it, right? Same thing with the Bible. We need, we need the Bible. We live like God's word is optional in our lives. When, that's really insane. So the church, so as a church, we need to be word-saturated, we say. Let's keep the Bible central, not just as information, but for food for our lives. So we might starve. Jesus might have starved. But you know what's worse than suffering? What's, what's worse than suffering? Starvation. Sin. Sin is worse than suffering. Sin is worse than Satan. Sin is always worse than suffering. Always. It's better for us, Mark Dever says, it's better for us to suffer than sin. And John Piper has said, sin is worse than Satan. And it is. Sin is the worst thing that you could ever do in your life. You don't need to sin. You never need to sin. So rest in Jesus who defeats Satan to save you with his people, save you as his people from your sins. So Jesus passes the hunger test. But then Jesus also passes the Bible test in verses 5 through 7. So here again, remember, in, or going back to verse 5, Jesus, uh, the, saint, the devil takes him to the holy city, stands on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Verse 6, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So here's a Bible test for, for Jesus. Satan is quoting the Bible. Satan says, oh, you you live by every word of God. Do you? Okay, well, let me give you some of the word of God. Let let me play your game. You're going to live by every word of God. So so let me quote to you Psalm 91 verses, uh, I think it's verses 5 through 7. No, it's 13 and 14, I think. Psalm 91. So let me quote Psalm 91 here. He quotes it. And how does Jesus pass the Bible test? He says, ah, bad interpretation, Satan. That's a bad interpretation of Psalm 91. That's a bad application of Psalm 91. You're not going to fool me. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to jump from a 45-story building just because of the way you want me to apply Psalm 91. And Satan might say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. James 1. And yet, Jesus says, yes, we should be doers of the word, not hearers only. But the way you're telling me to do the word is not. It would actually make me disobey other parts of the word. And the Bible never contradicts the Bible. So I could never say I'm obeying Scripture to disobey Scripture. So what do we need to do? If Jesus passes the Bible test, what should we do? We need to know our Bible so we can pass the Bible test as well, right? Do we know the Bible well? Do we study it carefully? Are we aware of false and sneaky misunderstandings and misapplications of Scripture in your mind or in the church or in the culture? As a church family, we need to be a truth-speaking, Bible-quoting, theology-thinking, gospelizing people who regularly use our words to strengthen each other in Christ as we teach and apply the Bible correctly. And let me just say a word here of encouragement to humility and to, to actually speak. Don't be afraid to say, don't be afraid to misapply and misunderstand the Bible with another person. Who here understands the Bible perfectly? Stand up and say, I do. Now, maybe you're just too embarrassed, but I, my, I'm going to guess that none of you would say that. I don't, which means I'm going to say things that are, misunder- I'm going to misunderstand some parts of the Bible, right? Am I, if I misunderstand, does that mean I might misapply some of the Bible? So should that paralyze me from preaching on a Sunday or gospelizing another church member during the week? No. And if I'm wrong, I want you to point it out. That's what we want to do with each other. Let's not give in to the satanic fear 
that if I say something wrong, it's crippling. No, you're crippling yourself and those you love and our church when you're not saying anything because you're so worried about getting it perfectly right every time you say it. You're not going to. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Let's speak and let's try. Take a Bible verse, apply it to each other. And as we make mistakes, guess what? You know what's going to happen if we start making mistakes and correcting each other? What's going to happen to us? We're gonna, we might actually start to what? Grow and learn, right? Is that a bad thing? To start learning the Bible and growing and learning how to speak it well? Satan has us tricked by this perfectionism that is satanic. And let me give you the main thought here in Psalm 91. In Psalm 91, Satan was thinking, uh, Satan wanted Jesus to experience Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn there now. We're going to turn there in a second. Uh, we might actually. But Psalm 91, 11 and 12, listen to this. It's really interesting. Jesus, Satan wants Jesus to experience Psalm 91, 11 and 12, which is jump down and the angels will, will catch you, right? Experience it, Jesus. Jesus doesn't obey Satan. And guess what happens? He experiences Psalm 91, 11 and 12 and 13. So let me read it to you. Psalm 91, 11, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that, you're, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's 11 and 12. Listen to 13 now. I want you to put your Bible ears on here, your Bible radar here. 13, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Huh. You will trample the serpent? Who's the serpent? Satan. You hear the poetic, you know, the, the imagery there, the allusion here? Did, did Jesus experience Psalm 91? Did he, the, did he trample Satan? Yes, by, by not doing what Satan said, he's actually experiencing Psalm 91. And did angels minister to, to Jesus at the end of this battle? Yes or no? So did he experience Psalm 91? Yes, he experienced the angels. He experienced the trampling of the serpent by not obeying Satan's use, misuse of Psalm 91. So what should we do? Rest in Jesus, who defeated Satan to save you and his people from their sins. Okay, he passes, so he passes the, the hunger test. He passes the Bible test. Lastly here, or the third test here, he passes the worship test. He passes the worship test. Now, this is initially puzzling. So Satan comes up and says, um, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And you're thinking, this is like the worst temptation. This is like the, the non-slickest, non-sneakiest temptation ever, right? It's like he, big horns and just worship me, and I'll give you these things. Oh. Maybe I'll worship you. Maybe you're God. It's just, it's so obvious that he's not God. You know, it's puzzling to think, why would this even be tempting to Jesus? Why would this be tempting to Jesus? And I'll answer that in a second. But let me, let me say for now, it's a worship test. Jesus passes the worship test. What's the worship test? Will you either worship God or worship who? Satan. That's weird that there's only two possibilities. Worship God or worship Satan. Is there really only two possibilities? Yeah, ultimately, yes. This is an application of uh, 1 John 2.15 that says, don't desire, the, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. For, the, for all the things that are in the world are not from the Father, but from the world. And um, so, so you either love the Father or you love the world. Uh, that's what James 4.4 4 says. Anyone who is a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's not to say you shouldn't love the world in terms of their friendships. It's talking about like the, the mindset of the world. The mindset that ignores or marginalizes God, it leads to straight up satanic following. There's only two paths ultimately the Bible teaches. All non-biblical thoughts are ultimately and actually satanic thoughts. There are no neutral thoughts, no neutral sentiments, no neutral opinions that are neither here nor there. They are either here or there. It could even be about sports. You're saying, so is it you know, this is a longer theological discussion, but you can think about, I'm a Laker fan, for example. That's, one of my, that's my favorite basketball team. I could think about, oh, think about the Lakers in a way that glorifies God. I could also think about the Lakers in a way that doesn't glorify God. I could, and I could either be serving Satan's agenda or God's. Even in, even in that? Even in sports? Isn't there anything neutral? No, there's nothing neutral. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do what? All to what? the glory of God. There's nothing you can do that's neutral. You're either worshiping and glorifying God or worshiping Satan. Satan is, is, he's not so subtle here. 
And so Jesus probably sees right through that subtlety. But you know, Adam and Eve didn't see through that subtlety, right? Satan didn't say to Adam and Eve, worship me. He said, you should be God. It's more, it was, it's trickier, right? But in the end, who did they end up serving? Satan. Just like old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra, who sang, and now the end is near, or now the end is here. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way. Oh no, oh no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then, what, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. Not kneeling anyone else. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Bad news for Frank. Bad news for Frankie, baby. And bad news for everyone else who thinks they're doing it their way. Because you think it's your way and it's actually Satan's way. A puppet played in the hand of the puppet master. And you could even sing of your freedom from kneeling all the while your song celebrates your kneeling. He did it Satan's way. Thought it was his way. He wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping, as Revelation says, the dragon, the beast. So, Jesus, though, does Jesus worship Satan? No, he doesn't. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. You're right. He doesn't worship Satan. He worships God. So he passes the worship test. So what should we do? Rest in Jesus, who defeats Satan to save you and his people from their sins. All right, so Jesus passes the hunger test, the Bible test, the worship test. And you're saying, PJ, it's only 32 minutes into the sermon. Are we done? No, we're not done. I did that first because I want to teach you something about how you understand the Bible and the gospel. You have to keep in mind that Jesus is not writing, Matthew here is not writing about, G, about you, he's writing about who? Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus, not pointing to you. The message of Matthew and the message overall of the Bible is not first, be like Jesus. That's what I preached right now. And there's nothing wrong with what I said so far. The message of the Bible, the primary message of the Bible is not be like Jesus. So he passed the hunger test, you passed the hunger test. Or uh, he passed the Bible test. You studied the Bible, so you passed the Bible test. He passed the worship test and worship God, not Satan. So you passed the worship test and stop worshiping the world and Satan, but worship God. Ah, that, that's biblically true. That's not Matthew's main goal here, though. That's true. Jesus is an example. But you have to realize that the primary message of the Bible is not be like Christ. That's a necessary result that we must pursue in some sense, but not primarily. The primary message of the Bible is look at Christ, trust in Christ, follow Christ. So Matthew 4, the whole book of Matthew is, it's presenting to you Jesus who will save his people from their sins. So it's important when you read your Bible, brothers and sisters, to not read it first and say, how do I need to change my life? That's an important question to ask. It's a necessary question to ask. It's just not the first question to ask. The first question is, how do I see the glory of Jesus here? What do I learn about God here and his glory? Because when you stare at God and Jesus, you are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Okay? So we want to look here at Jesus, not ourselves. So let's run right back through these three temptations. I'm going to give you three more tests that Jesus passed. And this is, if I, if, if I didn't have to make that point, I would have just made these three the message of the story. Before we actually jump into these three temptations, one more round through, let me remind you of the story. Remember the story? Let me give you some categories here. The slaughter of babies coming out of Egypt through the waters into the wilderness for a period of 40 onto a mountain to receive the word from God. That's the story of Jesus. Or the story of Israel. Is that the story of Israel? Right? Killing babies, throwing them in the water, trying to kill Moses and all the rest of the babies. 
Redemption coming out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, on a mountain to receive God's word at Mount Sinai. The story of Jesus is the story of Israel. Is it the story of Jesus? Is it the story of Israel? Both. Hmm. That's what it means by God's son, isn't it? I mean, if you are the son of God, and we talked about son of God in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this is my beloved son. That's referring back to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, which is basically saying this son of mine is the suffering servant, the Davidic king, the true Israel. The true representative of Israel as the Davidic king and the true Israel, the true people of God. So remember, let's stare at Jesus, not ourselves first. Let's not get an example for our own temptation. Jesus is the true David. He's the true Israel. He's the true representative of Israel. And so he gets baptized, and then the Spirit sends him where? Into the what? Wilderness to battle who? Satan. You know what that sounds like? You know, you know he was anointed with the Spirit. You know who's the most prominent king in the Old Testament? If you guys don't know the story of the Old Testament, let me just tell you about the story of the most prominent king briefly. Who's the most prominent king? David. And he was anointed as a young boy, right? His other brothers were overlooked. He was anointed, and when he was anointed with oil by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, who came upon him? The Holy Spirit. And in 1 Samuel 17, the Spirit sends the anointed one, the Messiah, to battle who? Goliath. Anointing, kingship, spirit-filling, sent out into battle. Hmm. It's an interesting pattern. And then after he wins the battle, all the rest of the army goes to what? Fight and conquer the rest of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17. Just like Israel, when they come and they're anointed and they come out of Egypt and they go to the promised land, what are they supposed to do under Joshua to, to all the Canaanites in the land? Conquer the land. What about Jesus? When he, he's baptized, he's anointed, he fights Satan in, the, in this battle, and then what does he do from this point on to the rest of the book of Matthew? He's teaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons, he's teaching biblical truth, he's raising the dead, he's doing miracles, he's confronting enemies, he is battling in the land and cleaning out the land. So is it a story about Israel or David or Jesus? Well, this is about Jesus. Here's the point. It's not just, get this, brothers and sisters, it's not just that Jesus' story parallels Israel and David. It does parallel. But more than that, it points to Jesus. These stories don't just parallel Jesus. They point to Jesus. The main point of these stories is Jesus. Or another way to say it is this. Um, Jesus doesn't merely parallel the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills it. And so the Spirit leads him to be tempted by the devil. So with that Old Testament in in mind, David and Israel, with that in mind, now let's look at Jesus, okay? Let's look through these three temptations one more time. We'll get a little bit of Old Testament context here, and then we'll really learn the main point of what Matthew's saying. So here's, here's the first test. Again, going back to the beginning. So you can say, next test. Jesus passes the worry test. It's not just a hunger test, it's a worry test. What do you mean it's a worry test? So he says, turn these stones into what? Into bread, and Jesus says, man must not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this is from Deuteronomy 8. So keep your finger in Matthew. And if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, all three quotes of Jesus are in Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Okay? So if you're, if you're, um, if you're, if you're visiting with us today and you're like, what's Deuteronomy? I'll tell you where to turn. If not, you could just listen, though. So Deuteronomy uh, 6, 7, and 8 is on pages 157 through 159, okay, of the Pew Bible, 157. But keep your finger in Matthew, because that's our main text. So Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 um, says, Carefully follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may take possession of the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers. Remember, the Lord God led you on your entire journey, Israel, for 40 years in the wilderness, like 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you. Who's the one who's leading them into the wilderness here? God led Israel into the wilderness to what? To test them. God led Jesus into the wilderness to what? Test him. What's the test now? Look at Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. What's the test? So that he might test you to know what? What is in your what? What is in your heart? 
whether or not you would keep his commands, verse 3, he humbled you by letting you what? Go hungry. Remember he gives manna from heaven? But remember this. He doesn't give manna right away. He intentionally lets them go hungry first. Why? To what? To test their heart. He intentionally lets Jesus go hungry first. Why? To test his heart. So it says, I let you go hungry first. Then he gave you manna to eat which you and your fathers had known. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you let us go hungry first and then give us food rather than just giving us food when we're hungry? Why? It says here in verse 3, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does that mean? That means, go, go to verse 16 or verse 15. He led you, just like he led Jesus, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought you water out of the flint rock for you. Verse 16, he fed you in the wilderness with manna, which you had not known. Why? In order to what? Humble and test you so that what? So that in the end, he might cause you to what? Prosper. Okay, so I'm going to summarize for you Deuteronomy 6 through 8. I might teach this tonight in our Sunday evening service. These Old Testament chapters in full, but let me summarize it for you here. The goal is prosperity in the promised land. Or let me put it this way in light of last week's sermon. Prosperity in paradise. That's the goal. Prosperity in paradise. How do you get there? God leads you to the wilderness. You get hungry. God provides for you. You learn to trust his word. Then you get prosperity in the promised land. Okay? You see that? That's the order in in, in Deuteronomy 8. I'm, I'm giving a shortcut here rather than walking you through. God leads you to wilderness. He tests you with hunger to see what's in your heart. Once you pass the test and you just trust his word and not just yourself, he feeds you to teach you that you should trust his promise even when you're hungry. You don't need to run and, and shortcut God's method for providing for you. He will provide for you in his time and in his way. You just need to trust in his word. And then when you do that, then you enjoy prosperity in paradise. Deuteronomy 5, 6, 7, and 8 is all about going into the promised land, prosperity in paradise. The land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And you can just read on in, in 6 through 8. You're going to see the prosperity all over the place here. Okay, so Jesus passes the test. He passes the worry. So it's not a hunger test. It's a worry test. I'm hungry. How, how is my needs going to be met? I'm worried I'm going to die. No, no, don't worry. God said he's going to feed us. God brought us out of Egypt. Of course he's going to feed us. He said he's going to bring us to the promised land. I am going to trust his word even when I'm feeling hunger. It's not a hunger test. Ultimately, it's a worry test. Is your heart a worrisome heart? Is Jesus' heart a worrisome heart? Or is, he, is his heart, to use Philippians 4 language, is it guarded? Is the peace that passes all understanding guarding his heart and mind in Christ Jesus because he trusts God's word? That's the test. Do you worry when you have a real need and your stomach is literally grumbling and you feel like you're about to pass out in hunger? Or does the hunger get so much, get so much here that you have to do it your own way? Your worry leads you to sin or does your worry lead you to trust? For, for Jesus, it led him to trust. That, that didn't happen for King Saul. Remember King Saul? He wanted favor from God because he was about to go into battle. And so he's not supposed to make a sacrifice. Only the prophet is. Samuel is late. He's like, he's supposed to be here on day seven. It's day seven and a half. And the king's not, uh, the prophet's not here. I'm gonna make this sacrifice myself because I need God's favor. So I'm gonna disobey God, kill the sacrifice myself, offer it to God so that I could have God's favor. I'm gonna disobey God so that he likes me. Okay, so, so that's what Saul's gonna do. So that's what he does. And then Samuel comes and says, why did you disobey God? Well, I, I, I didn't know. The, the people were panicking. I was feeling worried. And, and so, like, the people were scattering. They were going to be too scared to battle. So I needed to do something. So I, I decided to make the sacrifice. Ah, oh, you gave in to worry. You didn't live by God's word. That's not just, not just Saul. Even Israel. They complained in the desert when they were hungry the first time in, first, in Exodus 16. They started saying, if, only if we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. They're complaining about God not providing, and they look at slavery in Egypt like it was paradise. We used to have pots of meat, eat anytime we want, just kick it and chill out in the front porch. No, you were slaves. Yeah, you had food, but you were slaves in Egypt. But when you are complaining and doubting rather than trusting and obeying God's word, 
you start to say some crazy things. They needed to live by God's word because he would bring them to paradise in his own way. And what about Adam? Wasn't he already in paradise? Did he live by God's word? Or did he also live by the fruit from the knowledge of tree and evil, of good and evil? You're supposed to live by, 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 by God's word and not just by the food. Yet Adam, even in paradise, he didn't live by the food and the word. He just wanted the food. And David as well, committing adultery to satisfy his sexual hunger with another man's wife. Why? He didn't want to live by the word and the gift of marital intimacy. He just wanted the physical pleasure. We don't live by food and the word in our own lives. We just want the food. And if the word gets us that, then that's what we want. We don't really care about the word too much. Not Jesus. He passes the worry test by trusting the word because he understands that sin is worse than suffering. He would rather die than sin. He would actually die rather than sin. So rest in Jesus who defeated Satan to save you because he passes the worry test. But let's go to the second temptation. So I called it earlier, I called it the Bible test. It's more than the Bible test. It's the assurance test. You actually have to read the context here. Now, um, I don't think I want you to turn to Psalm 91 for the sake of time. Let me summarize Psalm 91 for you. Because Satan is quoting, so this is the whole thing about a jump off, jump off the ledge because the angels will catch you. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 91. Let me tell you the point of Psalm 91. Here's the point of Psalm 91. And then you figure out whether Satan's using it properly or not. Here's Psalm 91's point. Rest, so if I was preaching on the sermon, it would be rest secure as a man or woman of God because God will act for his own. You have entrusted yourself to Yahweh who protects you with his angels. And thirdly, because God himself says he'll protect his own. So that's why you should just trust, rest secure as a man or woman of God. So Satan's taking that, rest secure as a man of God. You just got deemed God's son at baptism. So if you're resting secure in that, Jesus, and he protects himself by his angels, or protects you by his angels, then go jump, because you should be resting secure in the fact that you're a man of God. That's how Satan uses it. He says, so here's Satan's question. I want you to hear the actual question he's asking Jesus. He's saying, do you, do you live under God's protection? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really God's son? And is God really protecting you? Does God really have favor on you? If so, you know how you can prove it really easily? Because Psalm 91 says, everyone that God has favor with, he will protect them and he won't let their foot hit the stone, right? By his angels. Jesus, here's a very simple, easy way for you to prove that, you got, that um, God's on your side. Just jump. You're living by the word and it says that, this is biblical stuff now. I'm not being unbiblical here. It says that he'll protect his own people. God just said you're his people. If you think you're his people, or his person, then jump. So that's Satan's question. You, you see, just prove, you'll actually prove that the Bible is true. But what's Jesus' response? Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not test the Lord your God. Look at Deuteronomy 6.16. Are you guys there in Deuteronomy still? Deuteronomy 6.16. Look at that verse. It says... Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at where? Where? Masa. Do not test the Lord your God. So Jesus says, yeah, Psalm 91 says he will protect me, but I would still be disobeying this text that says, do not test the Lord your God. As you tested him where? At Masa. What is that talking about? If you write in your Bible, I don't know if you do, but if you do, write, write down next to it, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Okay, I'm going to turn to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. You could turn there if you want, or you could just stay where you are. But Exodus 17 talks about Masa. Because here, so what's the test at Masa? You, gotta go, you, you kind of have to go back to the roots and dig it all up if you're going to really understand, um, or if you're going to understand more deeply what Matthew 4 is saying. It's all here in the Bible. L- listen to what's there. I'll, I'll, let me tell you some of the story. I'll read some key verses from Exodus 17, 1 through 7. They complain about water. They say, we're thirsty, we're going to die of thirst Thanks, Moses, for doing this. Look at, listen to verse 3. Or verse, um, verse 2, they complained. They said, give us water to drink. And then Moses says, why are you testing the Lord? And then they say in verse 3, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Wow. What are they saying? Moses and the God who sent you, you know why you brought us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us out? To what? Why did you bring us out to kill us and our children? Is that really why God brought them out to kill them? 
I mean, isn't that the most ridiculous statement given what just happened? And yet they really say ridiculous things like that. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? Why does God want to kill us? And you're scratching your head thinking, God wants to kill you? He brought you out of slavery. Like there are miracles. What do you mean God wants to kill you? So then, so what are they doing? They're actually saying God is not good. God is evil. God is not giving me a flourishing, happy life. God is oppressing and holding me down because he's not giving me this thing I want in my life. He's not giving me the health or the friendship or the relationship or the church or the job or the grades that I want. God is oppressive. I got to obey these words of God and he's holding me down. Why did he, why did he make me a Christian to just give me an unhappy life? Because he doesn't favor me? So they deny God's goodness and assume he's evil and oppressive. And then verse 7 is the key verse here about the test. Because I would have not thought verse 7 is the test, but verse 7 phrases it in a very strange way, at least initially. Look at Exodus 17, 7, or listen to it. So basically Moses takes the rock, he strikes it, water comes out. God tells him to strike the rock. This is not the sinful one for Moses. But verse 7, he named the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested Yahweh by saying, listen to their test. What's their test? Is what? Is Yahweh what? Among us or not? Okay, brothers and sisters, look up here. Here's the test. They're saying, is God with us or not? Does God love us or not? Does God favor us or not? Is God good to us right now while we're thirsty or not? Their answer was what? Yes or no? They're complaining. So their answer is, no, he's not good. No, he's not with us. No, he doesn't care. No, he doesn't have favor on us. And so they complain and they sin. They test his goodness, his favor, and his presence, and they sin. What about Adam? Here's Adam in the garden, and Satan says, if you eat of this, you'll be just like God. God isn't good to you. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him because he's not good. He's not favoring you. He's not present here with you. So they ask the question, Adam and Eve, is God here with us? Does God favor us? Is God really being good to us? And they answered yes or no. No. So they ate the fruit. Even with a good creation, a good marriage, a good Edenic paradise, and good food and good pets. Adam and Eve had good pets, right? They were all good pets at that, time, at, at, at that time. No bad pets. And yet they disobeyed God. What about Israel? Is God for us? Now, should they have known that God is for them? God gave them manna and quail, Exodus 16. God brought them out of Egypt on dry ground. God killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians and none of their kids. God killed all their livestock of the Egyptians and none of their livestock. God gave them gnats and darkness, but not on them. God, has, God gave them water earlier through a, a bitter place of water. They threw a tree in there and then the water became good water and God gave them water to drink. And now you get over here and you're saying, God hates us and wants to kill us because we're thirsty? Really? After all that, you think God wants to kill you? What about us? What has God, has God been good to you? Has God saved you? Has he given you his word? Has he given you friends who know God's word? Has God given you grace upon grace? Has God given you friends around you who support you and, and rebuke you and restore you and care about you? Count the blessings that God has given you. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. They are endless. And yet we say, is God really here? Does he favor us? Is he with us? Is he good to me in my trial right now? And sometimes we say no. Now for Jesus, what's his answer? Is God good or does he need to jump off to prove it? That's what Satan's saying. Prove it. Like if you jump off, then you know God is with you. Then you know God favors you. Then you know God is good good to you because he just, he saved you from falling down. Prove it. And Jesus says, he's already proven it. He's already proven it. I was born and... I, I didn't die among all the babies. I was brought out of Egypt. My mom and dad raised me. He sent a forerunner prophet preaching for me. He baptized me and then he even opened the heavens and he even put the Holy Spirit down on me like a dove. God already favors me. I don't need to prove it. So is God with me? Yes. 
Is God good to me? Yes. Even when you're starving 40 days in the wilderness and hungry? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus defeated Satan and the assurance test. Lastly, last test here. Jesus passes the paradise test. It's not just a worship test. This is a paradise test. If you're in Deuteronomy, look at Deuteronomy 6 again. Deuteronomy 6.13. It says, Fear the Lord your God. Jesus paraphrases. So Satan says, Bow down, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, and uh, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And then Jesus quotes, basically, he alludes to Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, take your oaths in, in his name, do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For your Lord God is among you, he's a jealous God, he owns you. So, in verse 24, if you, if you do this, what's going to happen? The Lord commanded us to follow all the statutes and fear the Lord our God for our what? Prosperity always and for our preservation. Preservation and prosperity in paradise is the goal. Jesus is not in paradise. He's in a wilderness and he's starving to death, literally starving to death. And yet, Jesus passes the paradise test. So is Jesus drawn to worshiping Satan? Do you think Jesus was tempted to worship Satan? Is there any draw there to worship Satan? Just because Satan is so beautiful or majestic for Jesus? No, probably not. That's not the draw. That would be like me. Uh, that would be like Satan asking you to break your leg because it's cool. Or to eat f- five pounds of fresh horse dung for, for 50 cents. Is that tempting to you? That, that just, that, there's no draw there, Satan. Sorry, don't feel tempted to do that. Um, the, so the draw is not worshiping Satan. The draw is the reward. If you worship me, you'll get what? All the What? kingdoms of this earth now satan runs the earth that doesn't mean that he's god but god has given him control of the earth in many ways until the end and so in one sense satan could could give him er the earthly kingdoms at least for a time so the draw for jesus is the the kingdom now why did jesus come to save his people from their sins and to establish god's what kingdom so you know what this is here's the temptation brothers and sisters it's the temptation to worship your goal more than god Jesus came for a goal. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. He came to have all the kingdoms under him for their blessing, for their good, for the ultimate paradise, for prosperity in paradise. That's why Jesus came. So when Satan shows him this, Satan is showing him, you can have a shortcut to all the things you came here for. You have a good ambition, Jesus. You want to set up the kingdom of God over all the kingdoms of this world? Guess what? I'll give you a free ticket right now. Just do it right now and you'll do it right here. Just worship me first. So worship God. So, um, but, so what does Jesus do? He worships God instead of Satan because he knows the only path to reigning in God's kingdom is not by worshiping other things, but by worshiping God. So, so here's what we do today. We'll worship our job so that we could honor God, right? Our goal is to spread the gospel, so we'll worship our job. Our goal is to honor God and spread the gospel, so we'll worship our family. We'll worship our church. We'll worship our money. We'll worship our, our freedom. We'll worship our social platforms. We'll worship our reputation. We'll worship some relationships in order to get our goal. But I still want to honor God, so I'm going to not share the gospel with my friend so that he could eventually learn the gospel because I don't want to offend him. And you're not actually worshiping God to get the goal. You're worshiping your friend's, repu- your friend's opinion of you. So Jesus is not... He's not just passing the worship test. He's passing the paradise test. Paradise is secured by God's pathway of worshiping God. You worship God, you get the goal of the kingdom, and then you worship God in the kingdom. That's Jesus' path. Satan is saying, don't go that path. Don't worship God. Just get the kingdom. Forget, forget God's glory in the end. Forget worshiping God on this side. Just get the kingdom. That's why you came. But Jesus won't fall for it. He trusts God's timing. He trusts God's plan, his path, his purpose. And you should trust God's timing and plan and purpose and worship him only. Israel worshiped other gods. They, they're supposed to take over the land of Israel, right? And clean out all the Canaanites. So how do they try to establish their rule in the land? By worshiping the gods of the Canaanites to make peace with them. That's not how you set up the kingdom in the land. Yet they did that. Adam and Eve, they didn't worship God either. They wanted to be like God. They wanted, that was their paradise, being, not being an image bearer. Their, their, their paradise was being equal to God and displacing God as the only supreme God. To be disobedient, um, to, to, for Adam, it's if I could have my wife, then I have my paradise. 
So they worship the gift of paradise and not the God who is paradise. Just like Israel, setting up in the land, worshiping peace in the land rather than worshiping the God of paradise, who is paradise. And then what about David? He took a census to show how mighty he was because he was worshiping the gift of the paradise of his military power rather than the God who is the true paradise. So it's not just about getting the kingdom, it's about how you get the kingdom. If we grow our church by, by, by threatening people with guns and knives, and we say, oh, we got a full building of members. Is it really, I mean, is that worth celebrating when you threaten people to become Christians? No, right? It's, in other words, the goal is not just the, having more, more people who say that they believe in Jesus. It's not just the goal, it's the way you get to the goal that matters. You worship God to get to the goal so that your ultimate goal of worshiping God is fulfilled. That's how we do it. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, and non-Christian friends, what is your paradise? What are you worshiping for what paradise that you're pursuing? Is God or Satan or your job or your career or school or family or health or sin or your reputation, is that your paradise? What or who is your life wrapped around that's going to take, that's actually taking you away from worshiping God and, and moving forward with his kingdom? All right, well, we need to close. Let me close with, you guys are in Deuteronomy. So the angels come and minister to Jesus, but if you're still in Deuteronomy, I want to close with a verse from Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to close, close with the gospel here. Deuteronomy 8, verse 19, says this. Just give me about three more minutes here. It says this in Deuteronomy 8, 19. If you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. So if you don't pass these tests, I testify against you today that you will what? Perish. Like the nations that the Lord God is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the, the, the Lord your God. Does yours say anything else besides perish? What's that? Destroy. Let me, let, me, let me say it the way that I would translate it here, and I think you'll hear the echo. Here's what he's saying. If you don't pass these tests and follow these commands, you will certainly perish. Or let me do it in the King James way. If you don't pass these tests and set up prosperity land by following my commands in the land I give you, you will surely perish. What does that sound like? Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? Who? Someone said it. Adam and Eve. The day you eat of this fruit, you will certainly die. It's the same exact Hebrew contract. A different word, but perish and die is a different word. But the certainly, it's like you will, so in, in the Garden of Eden, if the day you eat this fruit, you will dyingly die. And if you don't, if you're in the promised land now and you don't do these commands, you will perishingly perish. It's kind of showing you that if you don't obey and pass the test, the wages of sin is what? Death. Israel failed and they certainly perished. Adam and Eve failed and they certainly perished. Jesus in the wilderness, does he fail? No, he passes. And then he passes in the betrayal when Judas betrays him. He passes in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he passes when his disciples abandon him. And he passes during the trial. And he doesn't even sin when he's on the cross. And so he did not fail. So he certainly would not have to what? Perish. He certainly gets to enjoy prosperity and paradise, right? That's what he did, right? He didn't die, right? He doesn't have to die because he didn't sin, right? So he doesn't die. But he does die. He dies. Why does he die? He's not supposed to die. Adam's supposed to die. Israel's supposed to die. You're supposed to die. You're supposed to be condemned for your sins. Not him. And yet he died. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He defeated Satan to save you from your sins. That's the good news. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus passes the test for us. If you're not a Christian, Jesus died for you so that you don't have to die for your sins in hell forever. You just need to trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. If you have more questions about that, I'll be at the back door right after this. I'd love to talk to you. If you're a Christian, let's rest in Jesus' victory. Don't worry about being like him right now. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who what? Made an end of what? All my 
sin. Jesus sympathizes with us. As we take communion, let's rest in the victory of Jesus. Let me, let me say, I'm preaching to myself. This is my, own, my takeaway, so let me give this to you. Christian, I want to encourage you. Christian, stop using your sin as an excuse for not growing. If you're not a Christian, stop using your sin as an excuse for not coming to Christ. Christ did it for you. You can grow even though you sin in your life. If you're not a Christian, yeah, you have to say, I can't be a Christian. I have all this in my life. You can be a Christian, not because you're good enough, but because Christ defeated Satan for you. Same thing with Christians. You can grow. Well, PJ, I have this sin. I feel defeated. There's, you talk to me after. I'll share with you some of the struggles in my soul lately that I just feel defeated. And God is rebuking me here saying, PJ, stop using your sin as an excuse for not growing and making progress. Jesus defeated Satan for you. So grow. Fight. Engage. So let's examine our hearts for sin. Let's repent and confess it to God. And let's rest in Jesus who defeated Satan, sin, and death for us. The devil can't make you do it, but he will tempt you. And let's praise God that Jesus defeated the devil for us. Father, thank you for Jesus who died to save us from our sins, even though he did not fail. He died for us. And so we rest in his victory and we proclaim it now in our communion with the bread and the juice. We proclaim your victory in singing victory in Jesus. And we proclaim your victory by repenting together and confessing together and gospelizing each other and sharing what we're learning and by building deeper friendships together. Help us, Lord, to stop striving. Help us to be still and know that Jesus is God, that Jesus won the battle. May we stop and rest in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.